I didn't think I would get caught. Those are the words that were uttered by Lance Armstrong, the seven-time Tour de France winner. At least they used to be seven-time Tour de France winner. Uh, once he was busted, and he did this on the Oprah show, he came clean and let everyone know that what he was really about. But once he was busted, the International Cycling Union announced that they were stripping him of all of his Tour de France titles. No surprise there. And on top of that, he was being banned from professional cycling for the rest of his life. In 2013, he tweeted that his, his bronze medal was being handed back to the U.S. Olympic Committee for his win in the 2000 Sydney Games. You might ask yourself, well, hopefully, did, did, did Lance Armstrong learn his lesson? It's debatable. In 2015, he had an interview with the BBC where he said in 1995, doping was completely pervasive. I would probably do it again. Okay. The latest from, from, from the, the fallout of his decision was in August 2018, the U.S. Department of Justice announced that Armstrong would be basically paying back $5 million uh, from the money that they used to sponsor him when he was racing for them. So the consequences keep on going. And I don't know where Lance Armstrong is today. I know he's doing a podcast and he's trying to put his life back together. But I got to thinking, I wonder if that phrase ever ran through the mind of King David. I didn't think I would get caught. I don't know. Perhaps it's speculation either way. But the, the, the point of that being is that there's a lot of similarity between Armstrong and King David. Armstrong tried to cover his tracks. So did King David. And perhaps King David also experienced that sense of, man, if I, I'm, I'm the king. I can, get, I, can, I can do this successfully. I can get over this. But as we look at the lives of both men, and particularly this morning as we look at King David's life, I think it's important for us to realize that there's always going to be opportunity to sin, and the temptation to sin will always be there. But what's important to remember is that the consequences, the fallout of that sin, is usually far greater than we ever realize. I know that Hayden last week quoted, Pastor Hayden last week quoted Robbie Zacharias. That sin always takes us further, makes us stay longer, makes the price higher, all of that. And that's certainly part of my, my point here. But the, the greater overarching emphasis is as we look through 2 Samuel chapter 20 this morning, I want to point out to your attention that the, everything happening in that chapter, even the things that aren't directly related to David, are still a consequence of his initial sin. We're, we're far downstream at this point. But understand that everything we're reading here is in some way tied back to what David did. The consequences of his decision-making, his failures, his sins, his shortcomings. And, and that's important for us to see because as we work through this, we're going to want to be, we're going to be tempted to say, well, that was King David, that was his foolishness, but we've got to feel the weight of what's going on in this chapter. We've got to realize that this chapter gives us ample reason to run from sin, to turn from temptation, and shows us the ways, if we're willing to let sin have its reign, the ways in which sin will wreak, destruct, wreak destruction on our lives if we're not careful. So with that said, 2 Samuel chapter 20 this morning. As you're getting there, let me just quickly recap chapter 19, or at least the last part that leads into our section. Chapter 19 ends on an ominous note because what happens is King David is ushered back into Jerusalem, or is being ushered back into Jerusalem, and yet the children or the people of Israel, the ten northern tribes, weren't invited to be part of that party. You know that they get upset about that. They charge the, they charge the Judites with, with kidnapping David, essentially. Why didn't you invite us to bring him back? Wasn't it our idea? Judah said, he's our flesh and blood. What are you getting all upset about? This is, this is not a big deal. Well, Israel sees it differently. Judah eventually squashes them, according to the, the, one of the last verses in chapter, excuse me, uh, chapter 19. Sorry, I'm in the wrong book here. Give me a moment. Uh, chapter 19, the, it says that Judah's words were more fierce or fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So they won the conversation, but really only by shouting him down. <laughs> you're, you're wrong. We're right. Get over it. Well, on the heels of that, we now enter into chapter 20. 
Let's read the first few verses as we get some context here. Chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Now there happened to be there a, a worthless man whose name was Sheba. Now pause there for a second and realize that scripture is already giving you commentary about who the man is to be. You have no question in your mind about whether or not this guy's a good guy or a bad guy. In fact, the term worthless man, you've heard before. That's the same term, Belial, that we apply to our, our common enemy, the devil. So Sheba is a man of Belial. He's a worthless man. He's a son of Bikri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah, they followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. All right. So David's coming back from being uh, run out by his son. He comes back and now this man Sheba, an opportunist, comes and tries his best to create a division, a schism between Israel and Judah. Now you know that eventually this will be successful. And in fact, point of interest here, that second verse, actually it's still verse one, where he says, we have no portion in David. That's almost verbatim repeated word for word when it actually does take place. That's interesting because even though Sheba's not successful in this chapter, you find that the seeds that he's planted eventually do sprout and cause a division later on down the line. But Sheba, you know, offers this charge. We have no portion in David. You know, David doesn't care about us. Those guys are all about themselves. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man who's owed to Israel, let's, let's do our own thing. Sheba the opportunist comes in and tries to start a rebellion. Of course, David's especially sensitive to this, given the fact that his son Absalom had just run him out. And so this is a bad way to start your time back in Jerusalem. He's, he's a, uh, Sheba is, is causing issue already. There's frustration here. But recognize that what's happening here is a direct result, again, of David coming back in the first place. This would never have happened, or at least we could, uh, we could speculate it wouldn't, if David wasn't coming back, if David was, was established in his kingdom. Uh, this whole issue happened as a result of them bringing him back, the Judahites bringing him back. So Sheba's a problem. In fact, all of chapter 20 is going to be about chasing down Sheba. He's really the backdrop. He begins and he ends this. But really, it's the stuff in between that we're most concerned about. So the rebellion of Sheba is a problem for David. He's upset about this. He's going to do something about it in a moment. Uh, but that's one part that we need to take a look at. I want to draw your attention to verse 4 now and show you another thing that we need to pay attention to. We're going to start looking now at Joab. Now we need some context. So verse four says, the king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me within three days. Okay, Amasa is the, the, the captain of his army. He's the general. And be here yourself. So go and gather people from, from Judah. We need to chase this guy down. Verse five. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. Now we don't know why that is. Uh, incompetence, it was too much, too quick. Uh, we don't know, but for whatever reason, Amasa is delayed. Uh, verse 6, so David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, would do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants, that is my, my, my guys, my secret police, my, my, my strongest men, and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him, get this, here's another ominous uh, foreshadow, Joab's men and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. So you have now Abishai, of course, Joab's brother is using, or yeah, Joab's brother is using Joab's men to chase down Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now, where's Joab in this occasion? Well, he doesn't get introduced just yet, but notice what happens. Verse 8, when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Okay, uh, now Joab 
was wearing a soldier's garment. So even though you don't, even though he's not initially mentioned, Joab is there. His men are there. Joab is there. Abishai, his brother, takes a back seat from this point forward. Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. Now, we have every reason to believe that this was an intentional maneuver by Joab because he knows exactly what he's about to do. You've seen this twice before in the case of, uh, in the case of Abner. Well, the javelins with, uh, with uh, Absalom was different. But with Abner, at least, you have this same situation playing out. So we have every reason to believe that the, the knife conveniently fell out. Maybe he tossed it on the floor. Uh, he, he would use his right hand as, as, a, as the hand that he would use to fight. His left hand would be, would be the one that would be the safest. And so... Or rather, the opposite. The opposite turned that around. Uh, so, verse 9, Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? Disarming him. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Okay, so the right hand, again, using him, betraying him with a kiss. This sounds familiar to you. Grabs him, says, My brother, are you okay? And with the left hand, verse 10, But Amasa did not observe that the sword was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Okay, let's pause right there and camp on these two instances here. You got the rebellion of Sheba, and you have Joab, the ruthless Joab, who kills, uh, who kills, really murders uh, Amasa. Now, the thing that we should realize here is that Joab is, I mean, okay, so he's got two brothers. He had two brothers anyway. Joab is the son of Zariah. Zariah is not his father. And that's the usual way that we would hear that. The son of Zariah is actually his mother. His father's dead. Um, and his mother is the half-sister of David. So Joab has two brothers, Abishai and Asahel. We see Abishai here. Abishai takes a back seat again. He's not, he's, he kind of exits the scene once Joab takes his position of authority once more. Um, Joab murders Abner, 2 Samuel chapter 3. He, he enters the book of 2 Samuel pretty early on. And you find out he's a, he's a capable fighter, a capable leader, and, and at least militarily. Murders Abs, uh, Abner, kills Absalom, contrary to David's command. Now, what you'll notice about, about Joab in particular is that he's really, he's a helpful guy for, for King David, except when he's not. <laughs> he's got a lot of foibles, right? The guy just seems to be his own man. He's a loose cannon, and David knows this. Again, you have two instances beforehand where, where, uh, where David gives him counsel or tells him, hey, don't do this, and he does it anyway. So jo Joab is a known quantity. David knows what Joab is capable of, both for good and for ill. And so when you see Joab go and kill Amasa to regain his position, no one is surprised by this. The narrative makes it sense, like, okay, well, yeah, this is what Joab does. And David knows that. In both instances, Sheba and Joab, you have really the ongoing fallout of David's sin. Again, as I've argued from the beginning here, Joab should have been dealt with. If, if King David were doing, uh, were doing the things that he should be doing, he would have controlled Joab. He at least would have taken him out. In fact, he tried to, it seems, uh, and yet he failed in that. So, as we look through 2 Samuel chapter 20, the first thing I want to bring to your attention, the first major point here, is, is to be certain of something. Um, when you look at how David has led, again, he's a godly man, he's a man after God's own heart, and yet he's failed miserably on countless occasions. And those, those failures, those sins have continued to chase him down, and he's still trying to pick up the pieces of his life. One of the things you and I need to not be surprised about is the fact that sin produces destructive consequences. Be certain of this. Your sin produces destructive consequences, not just in the life of David, but in our lives as well. 
our lives as well. This is why it's so important that we understand what's happening in David's life, because this is a direct result of the decision-making that he's, he's committed. We have to remember that sin is blinding. It's that deer in the headlight syndrome. We're looking at the headlights. It's bright and shiny, not realizing that that bright and shiny light headed toward us is going to kill us. Years ago, one of my pastors, uh, as a birthday present, sent me this email with a list of, it's called 40 thoughts to consider before you commit adultery. Now, I don't think I gave him any indication to think that I was doing anything, but he, he because he was a pastor, he's seen it before, he said, hey, this is why you should be on your A game and, and be aware of the consequences of things like that. And so I loved it because in, those four, in that list of 40 things, there's some sobering comments like this one. This is the first one. I think this was helpful. I would violate my relationship with my Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, who has loved, cared, and died for me. This action would disregard the selfless and cruel death he suffered in, in order to give me power over this sin. So it starts by making us clear the fact that if we were to do something like that, we ultimately betray Jesus. Here's another one. I would choose to submit myself to a destructive process of self-deception and the doling of my conscience, causing a lack of confidence in my future ability to walk in obedience and faith. Here's another one. This is a painful one. I would inflict unimaginable pain on my wife, my best friend, and my faithful and sacrificial partner in ministry and life. And I would have to stare her in her tear-filled eyes to explain this conscious violation of my vows and describe the stupidity of my behavior. Here's another one. I would violate the love and trust of my precious children. In essence, I would be telling them, your mother is not a worthy person. Your father is a liar and a cheat. Honor is not as important as pleasure. My own selfish satisfaction is more important than loving my children. Lastly, let me just mention this one here. I would bring long-term disrepute to the positive reputation of my church and the community, hindering future ministry to people in this area. The things that we often, uh, we know these things. We know these things, right? This is obvious. This is so clear in our minds, but it's obvious really as we look in retrospect. In the moment, that's when it's not obvious. And for us as men, we know what it's like to struggle with sin and to feel blinded in the moments and to feel dulled in our sensitivities when it's coming at us full steam. Take a look with me at Galatians chapter 6. Keep your, keep your finger in 2 Samuel 20. But look at Galatians chapter 6 with me. I want to point something to your attention that may seem, again, obvious, but so important for us to, to really grasp. Sermons like this don't, don't often bring us like any newfound insight. It's about, yeah, I get that. I need to be reminded of that. But Galatians chapter 6 is a helpful, helpful reminder as to why. Galatians chapter 6, starting at verse 7. It starts off with the words, do not be deceived. Now, that should be enough to help us remember. It's easy for us to be deceived. Well, about what? God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I mean, that's a, that's a simple truth. And yet, compare that with Hebrews chapter 3. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But what? Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the what? Deceitfulness of sin. See, it's not that David was dumb. It's not that you're dumb. It's that we're sinners. And the, dece the, deceptive, the deceitful nature of sin means that we're always vulnerable in this area. And notice in Galatians 6 that God is the active party. God is not mocked. 
We were not going to get away with sin ever. And we should always remember that. Sin is not something that we can squash. We can't sow seeds. We can't sow apple seeds and expect not to have an apple tree. In the same way, we can't sow to the flesh and expect to have a harvest of righteousness. This is essentially the point that we see in David's life. You see him sowing seeds of the flesh and reaping those destructive, destructive consequences. And he shouldn't be surprised. I think if there is any surprise on David's part, it's that they keep going so far. They're long-lasting consequences that continue to pain him. Gentlemen, what we need to see from Galatians 6 and from 2 Samuel 20 is that our actions have consequences. No brainer, right? But clearly scripture makes it a point to remind us time and time again that our actions need to be disciplined in their godliness. If you notice here, it's the whoever sows to the flesh will reap from the flesh. It's the idea of sowing and reaping. You've heard this principle before, but keep this in mind too. How often do you plant a seed and see the fruit the next day? Right? It doesn't happen immediately. The consequences of our righteousness and our unrighteousness are often not immediate. And that's what's so devastating about this is because it can go under, undetected for a long period of time by our closest brothers, unless we're doing something about it. We need to understand that our sin will find us out and will expose us. And that should create a certain sense of godly fear in our hearts to be reminded we need to be fighting and battling sin every single day and not relenting. Sin has destructive consequences. Go back to 2 Samuel 20. I want to also point out to you, it's not just destructive consequences, not just bad things that happen to us as a result of our sin. There's also others involved, other people who suffer because of our indiscretion. There's three parties in in 2 Samuel 20 that I want to point your attention to. The first one are the concubines. We're going to read their, their section in a second. The second one is the commander. We talked about Amasa. We'll briefly touch on him again. And then the last one is the city. So the concubines, the commander, and the city. Three parties that suffer because of, of, again, of David's indiscretion, of David's sin. Now, actually, one of those is only a potential. The first two are actual. Let's look at the, let's look at the concubines. Verse 3. Verse 3 hits us like a train because it seems like it doesn't quite fit there. David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the houses, the ones that Absalom violated, and put them in a house under guard, and provided for them. Okay, so he takes them away from his house. He puts them in a different house. He has someone guard them, keep an eye on these gals. And he did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Now that little verse there, that verse three ought to strike us because again, what, what did the concubines do? I mean, nothing, right? They're, they're totally innocent, innocent in a, in a relative sense, victims of David. And not only that, it wasn't that they were violated by his son, which would have humiliated them and caused shame. But then, as a result of that, he shuts them up. It basically imprisons them. It doesn't say it that way, but he's, they're under guard. They're being watched for the rest of their lives, however old they were. Some of the most beautiful women in all of Israel now being shut up and left to, to die alone as a result of David's sin and as a result of Absalom's sin. Let's throw that out there, too. These women suffer almost immeasurable harm because of what, what David did. In fact, this is a fulfillment. You heard it last week of 2 Samuel chapter 12. God promised that this would be the result of his, of his sin. Uh, these gals are, are, are violated, humiliated, and now isolated. And all at no fault of their own. The concubines. The commander, as we, we read a minute ago, is Amasa. Amasa is installed by Absalom. Um, David keeps him there and says, hey, aren't you my flesh and bone? Let's, let's, let's keep you where you are. You ought to do what you're doing. I like you. And of course, uh, Joab goes and, and murders him, cold blood. 
if you'll notice, let me, let me, let's, yeah, I guess we don't need to cover that. So the commander killed in cold blood. Let's look at, let's start at verse 14 here. I want to show you the city. Concubines, the commander of the city. Verse 14, Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Bethmaica, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. So notice that he's not creating a strong rebellion. He's traveled all throughout Israel, and so far only his clan is following along. Verse 15, and all, those, uh, all, all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Bethmaica. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart and the city, and they were bat- battering the wall to throw it down. All right, so the intention, break down the walls, perhaps ransack the city, get Sheba. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near, he said, hey, are you Joab? He said, I am. She said, listen to the words, uh, listen to the words of your servant. And he said, I am listening. And she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That's ironic, (laughs) given the nature of who Joab is. He said, that is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give uh, give, um, Give up him alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, I'll do you one better. Behold, his head shall be thrown to, to you over the wall. The woman returns to her people in her wisdom and gives the counsel and says, here's what we should do. They cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Three parties, two actual victims, one a potential. Concubines victimized. Uh, Amasa victimized. The city almost victimized, but by the grace of God, spared and saved as God sometimes does, intervening in situations and causing there to be an aversion from crisis or, or destruction. The thing I want to point out to your attention here is that often we don't realize it, but our sin has a spillage effect. In fact, I put it like this, beware, your sin victimizes the vulnerable. There are people in your lives who will suffer because of your sin. And given the fact that you are men, and not only that, but you're, you're leaders in the home, you're leaders in the church, you got your husbands, your fathers, your managers, given your role that God has given you, the effect of your sin is greater than the effect that it has on you alone. You have influence, you have position, you have power, and with that power comes great responsibility. One of, my, uh, one of the things my wife tends to buy is the, the natural peanut butter. And it's the kind of peanut butter that you, you got to stir before you eat it. It's the food that you have to work for. And so, and so I have, last night I found out there's a way to, there's a better way to do this, but I have, since the beginning of time, I remember I've been stirring it with the, with a knife, put your knife in there and try to stir it up without spilling. Uh, and I, I don't know if it, I, for the longest time struggled to not spill. I still, I, I still, I haven't tried this yet, so maybe this, this method doesn't work, but I tried not to spill the, the, the peanut butter because that little layer of, of oil tends to spill over and then it stays on the thing. It never goes away. For as long as you use that peanut butter, that thing's greasy and it's hard to hold. I hate it. It bothers me to pieces. But I found out there's a better way to do that. <laughs> so if you have, uh, so if you have a, a way, that I, I think I have a way. I'm supposed to turn it upside down and let it settle for, the guy said six months. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So I seem to buy peanut butter six months in advance. 
But if you're going to do the, the knife method, chances are you're very likely to create spillage. And that spillage is going to have an effect on others. It's the, same, it's the same kind of thing when we have sin. That spillage affects more than just us. It has an impact on other people. And there's three groups of people in our lives that I want to draw attention to that tend to be the recipients of our destruction. They tend to be the victims of, uh, of our, our sin. Let me give you three parties. The first party is women. Women tend to be the, the ones who receive, uh, who receive the pain of our, our bad decision-making. And so I want to point your attention to specifically one area that I, I think most men have a little something to uh, know a little something about. And for that, I want to turn you also to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 3. The whole reason that this whole thing started is because of David's sin with Bathsheba. And so I thought it'd be appropriate for us to be reminded of, of the stakes and of the, the standard that God has for us in this area. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 3. David looks at Bathsheba, takes her, beds her. You get that. You remember that. New Testament, God doesn't expect a whole lot different from us. In fact, the... the the standard is higher, I think, given that it's now a heart issue and we have the Spirit. First Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because, and this is a point we need to recognize, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. You all know that I'm in high school ministry, and so I have an opportunity to talk to young men all the time about this particular sin, sexual immorality, and specifically as we even extend that, pornography. Pornography ruins men. Uh, sexual immorality ruins men. It disables us. And not only that, but the, the, the stats, if, if you've read recently on pornography, are not any better. You're not surprised by this, of course. But let me read to you a few stats about pornography and its pervasiveness in our society and also our churches. Listen to this. Over 40 million, 40 million Americans are regular visitors to porn sites. The average visit lasts six minutes and 29 seconds. You'd figure that out. There are around 42 million porn websites. 42 million Lots of novelty there, which totals around 370 million pages of porn. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than, get this, the NFL, more than the NBA, more than the MLB combined. It's also more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. 47% of families in the United States reported that pornography is a problem in their home. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. And get this, if you have young boys in your home, 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to porn. And 94% of children will see porn by the age of 14. I think the context of this book and the fallout of 2 Samuel 20 should be at least somewhat clear that this is one of the primary issues that men struggle with. It'd be silly for me to think that in this room there's not men who are currently present tense battling against a sin, and that's, that's fantastic. We should. But we should also recognize that the sex traffic industry, sex trafficking industry, and the porn industry have a symbiotic relationship. One feeds into the other quite naturally. And of course, if you're, if you're watching porn, the chances are you're watching a girl who's been enslaved. 
Uh, you're watching people that have been uh, have been forced to that activity because they've been kidnapped and they've been stolen away from their families and they've been forced to do this at the profit of somebody else. Which, by the way, the industry, as you can already see, this is just the porn industry. The, the sex trafficking industry is also quite profitable. In fact, the latest number I looked is around the 99 uh, victims, uh, about 99 billion annually. It's a lot of money. Women tend to be the ones who hurt the most when we engage in this sin in particular. There's a lot of other sins we could talk about, but this one I think is relevant given our, our subject matter. Men, this has got to be an area where we have to do war and we have to get real with each other and talk about these issues. If there's anything in your heart that is still leaning toward that, we've got to do battle. The women in our lives are the ones who suffer most. I mean, just think of it. These are someone's daughters on the screen, daughters and sons. These are someone's family members that are doing these things. Some because they want to, others because they have to. But recognize we're the ones who are committing this. We're providing the market where this thing thrives. And that can't be. I didn't talk about any of the church statistics, but it's not better. At least not a lot anyway. Statistically insignificant, it looks like. The church is not doing a much better job. And I've read reading stats about pastors who are in ministry who are struggling with pornography and on and on it goes. And I know that there's a rare, there's a rare guy in every, in every room who doesn't struggle with any of this. Brother, you need to pray for the rest of us then and make sure that we're being holy and godly and upright so that we're not victimizing the women in our lives, some of the weakest and most vulnerable among us. Speaking of weak and vulnerable, let's talk about the second group, children. Children are also uh, some of the, the, the parties who receive the fallout of our sin. Ephesians chapter 6, 4 tells us, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's our commission. That's what we're charged to do. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting at verse 6. And these are the words that I command to you today. They shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You should talk about them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. As fathers, our job is to lead and instruct our kids, to lead our home, to love our wives, to make sure that our families are strong. And this is an area where we can do, we can do better. This is an area where we, if we fail to lead our home, I mean, this is, I think, where David messed up. If we fail to lead our home, the fallout is on our kids. They suffer because of our negligence. They suffer if we're not being involved in their lives. They suffer if we're not doing the work of biblical manhood, biblical fatherhood. Our children suffer when we don't do that. The third group, our wives, or the women rather, children, and lastly, I thought the church. I was thinking about the fact that the church reflects the strength of the men. If you have a healthy, if you have healthy godly men in the church, you're going to have a healthy church. It tends to be the way it goes. First Corinthians chapter 16 Verses 13 and 14 say, be watchful, stand firm, act like men. Act like men. The Bible tells uh, the general audience, act like men. Why? Well, because men are called to lead. They're called to be strong. They're called to be the, the, the kind of guys that are sacrificing. The church is called to do that. And when the men are weak, the church is weak. God has called men to lead by example and sacrifice. And so we have to rise up to love our families and love our church. When men don't do that, the church suffers. When the church gets weak, our, our witness becomes weak. You are, you are the leaders. And that's why this whole series started with, if you remember, Pastor Mike opened this whole thing with called to lead. Called to lead. Because you are, by God's design, men and therefore leaders. When we don't do that, the church is victimized by the, by the weakness of men. 
This is the spillage of David's life and in the lives of others, and we would do well to learn from it. I want to draw your attention back to the whole chapter. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 20. And I want to point out that I think one of the best lessons we can learn from David's life is to not take sin lightly. Because again, as we see, there's a lot of fallout that happens as a result of this. So as we enter into our final point here, I just want to use or let, let this whole chapter be instructed for us in this particular way. Point number three, I think we need to ruthlessly put our sin to death now. In order to avoid all the things that we just saw, it's incumbent upon us to not just tolerate sin. We can't allow even small sin to, be, uh, to, to grow in our hearts, but we have to destroy it, take it out. I used to live in an apartment, and there was in this apartment, and there's always problems in an apartment. You know, one of those was, was cockroaches. Um, <laughs> I had cockroaches everywhere. You know, it was it was it was the kind of thing where we had, there was a, it was an infestation. You'd wake up in the morning if I was the first one up, I'd turn on the kitchen light, and they'd go scattering everywhere. It's disgusting. You never walked into the kitchen barefoot. So I started killing them with my foot, you know, and every now and then I'd see them, and I'd stomp on them, and I had the little ones and the big ones, and anyway, long story short. My foot stomping was ineffective. I found out if you're going to get rid of cockroaches that are infesting, in a, infesting in an apartment building, you've got to tent the thing. You've got to take all of them. You've got to nuke them. You can't show any mercy. You have to take them all out. If there's even a couple left over, they'll breed, they'll multiply, and they'll continue to, to infest the apartment, the apartment complex. Our souls are very similar. We have to go with a nuke option when it comes to our sin. We can't just step on little sins and say, okay, that's good enough, that's good enough, that's good enough, because we've got to uproot it at the heart, which is why the whole ruthlessly idea comes into place here. It's not showing mercy to your sin. It's being ruthless with it. That means canceling the Netflix account, which for some of us is like, well, we're just slow down. You know what we're talking about? Canceling the Netflix account, getting a dumb phone, which I found out are actually quite popular these days. Going back to, from the smartphone and going back down to just a phone that does phone calls and text messages is quite popular. <coughs> maybe driving the long way home, whatever it is, we've got to see sin in our lives as a major threat, a credible threat to our walk and the walks of others. It's what Jesus said when he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's taking the avenues of our sin and ripping them out of our lives such that our our families are protected. Our lives are protected because the stakes are high. Romans chapter 6 starting at verse 12, says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. That's good news. We have been called because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ on the cross. We've now been redeemed from the curse of the law and we now have the power to say no to sin. We don't have to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. We don't present our bodies as instruments for sin, but for righteousness. Three takeaways in this really quickly. Under this point, three takeaways. The first takeaway is we look at David's life. I want us to start looking at sin and saying, I got to deal with sin at the root, not the fruit. David should have quelled the rebellion, not just in his kingdom, but in his heart first. That would have been the more effective way. If he would have stopped his eyes from casting a glance at Bathsheba, that would have been an entirely different situation. David, uh, David let, he let Amnon do what he did. He didn't, he didn't touch him. He let Absalom do what he did. He tried to reconcile, but too late, too little, too late. David should have dealt with those things at the root of them. When it comes to us, men, we have to understand that the guy who decides to cheat on his wife doesn't, 
doesn't go from zero to 60 in a moment, at least not usually. There's a lot of little decisions that are made along the way, usually starting with the thoughts, the fantasies. There's a song by Cassian Crowns called Slow Fade. Here's the chorus. I, I think it's helpful for us. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray and thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never, never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. I thought that's, that's brilliant, and that's exactly true. We've got to be on guard at all times and dealing with sin, not at the, at the level of consequences, but dealing with it at the level of our heart, uprooting sin in any form that we see it. Secondly, don't tolerate sin's practical benefits. Why did, why did King David allow Joab to stick around? Why is he still around? And I think one of the reasons is that Joab was politically and militarily expedient. Joab was helpful. Joab had a lot of benefits to offer King David. And for the most part, you could probably say that Joab was, was loyal to the king. At least for the most part. He went, across the, he went against the king's desires um, on, a few, on a few major occasions. But Joab was expedient. And that's the thing. Our sin can often feel in the moment to be expedient. This is helpful. This is good for me. This, there's a benefit here. Cheating on my taxes gives me a bigger return. Um, exploding at my kids. If I you know, yell at them in anger, they can you know, be quiet for a minute. And that, that, that wins the argument. That settles the matter. But often sin gives us shortcuts that lead to nowhere. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. And that's often what sin presents to us. It's a, it's, a, it's a way of dealing with things that never fully satisfies. So don't tolerate sin's practical benefits. And last, daily rely on Christ for protection and strength. This is where our sermon has to end. And this is where chapter 20 needs to take root in our heart. We've got to see David's life and realize we're vulnerable. And in fact, when we realize, if we ever think we're not vulnerable, that's when we're most vulnerable. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he what? Fall. We've got to see David's life and see our lives and say, Lord, I know I'm, I'm, I'm made of the same stuff David was. And yeah, I have the spirit indwelling within me, but that doesn't mean I'm any less of a man. We've got to see ourselves in whatever stage we're in to say, man, I am vulnerable and the only help I have is Christ. But let me give you some good news. That's the only help you need. Christ, daily rely on him for protection and strength. Which means if we're going to do that effectively, that means we need one another because Christ said, this is my body. These people, everyone in this room, provided that you're in Christ, are the people that he wants us to rely upon and to fight the battle with. So as we are dealing with this, I want you to, it says that the hymn says, tune your heart to sing his grace, to be, to recognize that your hope, your help, and your support comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. Why? Because Hebrews 4 says this about Christ. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Men, the, the problem of sin is not going away anytime soon. But if we're willing to take ourselves to Christ day in and day out and to connect our heart to his agenda, his purposes for us, to do things like this, to continue meeting together and holding each other accountable, that's where the power is. I put in my notes here that we need to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, that we may be healed. That's, that's the book of James. 
I think part of the reason that the confession is needed is because sometimes it's easy for us. You know, again, remember, you could sow seeds that don't show any signs of fruit until much later. We've got to confess our sins to one another and let other men know where we are truly and not just giving them a picture of what we want them to think we are. Daily rely on Christ for protection and strength. I never thought I'd get caught as something a Christian can't say. Right? We can't say that. Not if we believe our Bibles. First of all, because Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Second reason is Hebrews chapter 12. I'll summarize it for you. It's verses 7 through 11, if you want to take notes on that. Hebrews chapter 12 essentially promises us that God loves us and therefore will discipline us when we are sinful. If we persist in sin, God promises that he will deal with that. Suppose that the summarization for this, guys, as I, as I close it here for us, is that we have to realize that the stakes are high and the consequences are painful. I wanted you with this sermon to feel your weakness and to feel your need to run to Christ every single day. Otherwise, I mean, what, what separates us from David? Yeah, he has a little bit more power than we do, but we're made of the same stuff. Scripture calls us to fight our sin and to do so diligently. We're uh, Hebrews 12, 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I don't know where this sermon finds you or whatever sins are currently being battled with, but it might be time to shed some blood for the sake of Christ, for the sake of your family, and for the sake of your church to guard yourself against the foolishness and the consequences of those things. The stakes are, in fact, high, gents. Let's pray. God, with a sermon like this, it's easy to walk away feeling like it's impossible to, to win. Everything conspires against us, our flesh, the world, the devil. We're aware of those things. And yet, Father, at the same time, your word provides hope. Even as we just read in Romans chapter 6, we don't have to let sin reign in our bodies. We have the power by your son's grace and through the spirit that indwells us to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. Lord, it's so important that we as the men of the church, leaders and fathers and husbands, do this day in and day out. I know, Father, that for many of us, it's not going to be a public escapade. People aren't going to be exposed on the church stage. It may not be the same kind of fallout that David experienced. His life is different than ours, Lord, and we understand that. But please help us to remember, God, that our sins do have a dramatic effect on our lives and the lives of others. It can't be contained. The fallout continues. Help us to be wise about sin, to despise it, to hate it, to avoid temptation, to cut off our right hands and pluck out our right eyes in order that we may remove ourselves from it, remove ourselves from the consequences and live lives of godliness. In fact, God, I would even pray that we would give the gift of our righteousness to our families and to our churches. Ultimately, we do it for you, Father. But when we're righteous, everyone else benefits in our lives. So please help us to be the kind of men that you call us to be. Let us live, as your word says, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Thank you so much, God, for the grace that we find in Christ. Thank you so much for the strength that he offers us. I pray now, God, that we would draw from that strength as we go into our small groups, discuss, and think through the implications for our own personal lives. Help us to apply your word and to live it day in and day out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.